This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, are you worried this morning that you have nothing to look forward to now that Game of Thrones has ended and you're wondering, I need a new show to watch. What am I going to do? Don't worry. Reporter Oscar Wells Gabriel says stay tuned because there's a spinoff series coming up. Even as people debate how the finale went down, there is already talk about what might be next for Game of Thrones. The HBO series is based on the books by George R.R. Martin, and while the series went beyond the books he's already written, he is working on two more. There's a good chance they can be mined for some new material for a possible sequel. For those who want to look back instead of forward, HBO says there's already a pilot in the works set in the same realm only thousands of years earlier. I'm Oscar Wells Gabriel. So don't worry, there's more coming. But let's talk about last night's series finale of Game of Thrones. I have to say, I did wonder if the creators and the writers of the show had run it by George R.R. Martin. You know, just said, hey, George, what do you think about what we're doing here? Because the series and the books have diverged, right, quite a while ago. But lots of divided opinion on this. And without any spoilers at all, not going to talk about that. I just want to know, what did you think about it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Or do you think, eh, could have been better? That is our hot question of the day today. So go ahead and vote. And I know some people were tweeting me saying, where's option D, as in never watched an episode? <laughs> I know there's some of us out there. I'm with you. I'm, I don't watch Game of Thrones. However, I do have a healthy appreciation of the people who are the huge fans of this. So this is for them. This one is for the fans out there. What did you think of that finale? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Do you think it could have been better? Go to SimiSarah980 to cast your vote or at CKNW. You can email me with your thoughts on this. And don't worry, I've, I've read all about it. I've kept up on it. So I know exactly what's going on. Let me know your feelings about how it all went down yesterday. Simi at CKNW.com. Or even if you want to use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. We are talking about cities all over the world that have a major problem. They are sinking. You may have heard in the news that the government of Indonesia announced it is planning to move its capital out of Jakarta. And one of the big reasons for that is it's sinking. Models predict that by the year 2050, parts of Jakarta are actually going to be submerged. We're talking about a city of 10 million people. Even measurements right now indicate that parts of the city are sinking by 30 centimeters or more every year. That's huge. So why is this happening? Is it happening elsewhere? And of course, what can we do to prevent or fix this? Well, to help us out with all of these questions, we are joined by Jorgen Steenfeld, Technical Director in the Marine and Foundation Engineering Department at the Cowie Consulting Group in Copenhagen. Well, Jorgen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. This is a really fascinating and complex subject, I know, for a lot of uh, cities out there that are dealing with this. Is this something that more and more of them have on their agenda as worries, I guess, about cities sinking? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, And it's very pronounced, particularly in Asia, where the mega cities are growing extremely fast. Uh, And uh, we see that in Bangkok, we see it in Jakarta, we see it in Shanghai, we see it in Tokyo, and some of the places they have managed to counteract it. But uh, Jakarta is one of the the top uh, priorities in that list where it's really sinking very fast and it's a huge problem. But yes, it is unfortunately a global problem. And why is it Uh, such a problem in Jakarta? What's happening there? Well, the... 
The, the first, uh, of course, is because of the size. Uh, we have 10 million people in Jakarta itself and probably 30 in, in la larger at Jakarta. And these people need a lot of water. Uh, so there's a combination of man-made reasons and natural reasons. Uh, in Jakarta, this uh, subsoil is very soft uh, at the top. It's marshy areas. Uh, and it's now been very heavily populated with skyscrapers and whatnot. And so the uh, very soft soil is compacted by the weight of the buildings and hence you get settlements. But that is not unfortunately the, the biggest concern. The biggest concern is again man-made that all these people need a lot of drinking water mm -hmm. and the industry needs a lot of water too. And you can't really use the surface water because it's polluted, uh, the river is polluted. So you drag it, uh, take it up from very deep down in the aquifers uh, way below. Right, and, and, does, that, and that, does that cause the rest of the land to kind of compress then? Yeah, you can, you can think of uh, the whole city sitting on a, a huge uh, uh, mattress, and, and I guess that most people have experienced if they're on a water, uh, mattress, an uh, air mattress, that if there's a small hole in the mattress, then you sink and you find right. that you are getting down. And so if you think of Jakarta and other of these mega cities sitting on a huge mattress, not filled with air, but filled with water, and some stiffness in order not to collapse it completely, then there will always be a little bit of a hole somewhere and water will seep out. And that means that you're slowly sinking and that's uh, the subsidence you'll feel. But then if you need a lot of water and you take it from deep down, then that huge mattress is depleted with water. And hence, you, you see on the surface a huge amount of settlement. Uh, and in Jakarta, it's several meters and it's 60 centimeters per year. So it's really, really important and very dangerous in a sense. 60 centimeters a year, that's a lot. What do you think of their plan to then move the capital to help deal with this? Well, I mean, you, you can... Sometimes you can move a problem without really solving a problem. Uh, it's 10 to 30 million people you need to move. That seems like a, a humongous task. Uh, of course, if, if Jakarta was built somewhere else uh, in the mountains, uh, you would still need the drinking water, but you would not have the problem if it's very stiff subsoils that is subsiding. But like so many other cities in Asia, uh, it's very uh, nice to be close to the sea so they can transport goods in and out using the sea and hence you are in areas that are notably very soft uh, and so moving the people will not I mean I can't imagine me moving 10 million people just with a clip of the fingers mm. uh, so it, it's it, I think it's a political uh, more than a real uh, problem so uh, way of solving problems what would be the solution then? I mean, they can't stay. Right? What should they do? Well, again, if, if the political will is there, and, and unfortunately it also demands a lot of money, then one would have to tackle the problem by stopping this illicit uh, extraction of water. And it's a bit of a wild west where anybody can uh, take a, a bigger well, and there are lots of illegal wells in Jakarta, so there's no control of the amount of water that's being extracted from the ground. So you would have to start regulating that. That's the first part. Then you would have to uh, clean uh, the wastewater in order to make it useful for uh, a lot of things that are not directly drinking water. So by having a smart management of the water would uh, stop the sinking. And then you would have to, again, go back to the old ways in where 
there was a lot of green areas in Jakarta so that the en enormous amount of rainwater that comes down can be useful and can replenish the groundwater reserve. So you could do that and, and you can have, you know, there are lots of different ways in which you can do that, but it takes, of course, time. And then you would have to protect the city from the flooding because mm -hmm. the subsidence has the added disadvantages and added problem that you're getting closer and closer to the surface of the ocean. And hence, in many, many days a year, uh, lots of Jakarta will be sw uh, flooded. Uh, and of course, that is causing huge problems with uh, destroyed infrastructure, uh, sewers going the wrong way, etc. Oh, are there cities in North America where this is a problem as well? There are cities, but most mostly the cities are not such a big problem. Uh, it's more... Uh, rural areas like uh, in Virginia, in the States, uh, there's a huge problem because the wine growing, the fruit plantations demand a lot of water and it's been extracted. And there you get up to 60 centimeters of uh, settlement. Uh, and, and there they have realized that they do have a problem. They have to stop it. So they are simply cleaning the wastewater and pumping it down. So you're in a, in a way uh, refilling the big air mattress uh, with water, uh, but of course it's costly. And, and in uh, in Virginia, it's something of the order. They in 2030 they plan to replenish by 120 million gallons wastewater a day uh, after it's been cleaned. So it, it's a humongous task to do that. Right, but then where are they getting their actual drinking water from? Well, the the, the drinking water is still from from wells, but. They would get it from clean surface water and so on. So it, it's 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 a multitask uh, okay, yeah. uh, task to to go and and do that. So is there any place in Canada that could potentially have this problem as well? I must admit I haven't heard of any places in Canada. Well, that's good. I would be sure there are lots of places in Canada where you have soft soft soil, but maybe you have been smarter and have implemented. Uh, nice control over who can actually take water out of the ground. Uh, I, I would su uh, suppose so, because I haven't heard anything there. It's mostly concentrated in Asia uh, in terms of the bigger cities. But uh, Is that because Bangkok of the size of the cities, or is it perhaps the, the, the type of ground that they have there? Well, it is a combination. So if, if you have soft ground, then of course you're more susceptible to have settlements. But it's basically the size of the cities that because there are so many people moving to the large cities you get more and more asphalt more and more concrete and less and less uh, open ground where the rainwater can see back into the ground so it's it's a combination of factors unfortunately is this something then you're gonna is this on the radar do you think of these of cities around the world is this something that's definitely going to have to be dealt with now in the next 5 10 15 years I think it's something that's uh, on the same par as the, the uh, climate. Uh, I mean, people are, are getting to understand that the climate means something that we have, uh, unfortunately, been very stupid and we are influencing the climate. So that's why we see the sea level rise, which is a very real problem. And if you then at the same time have a, a large cities sinking and the ocean rising, then it's a very, very dangerous cocktail. So yes, we do see that across the world and people are aware of that. And it's easier for the wealthy countries to do something about it, obviously. And for instance, in Denmark, we are looking at having a permeable asphalt so that uh, 
although we have a lot of streets and a lot of uh, uh, ways, then we do make sure that the water can come back into the ground because the soil is a fantastic um, means of cleaning the water. Uh, there are lots of bacteria in, in the soil. So if you can make sure that you get rainwater to seep down, then you can, you know, in years to come, have clean uh, water to use as drinking water. Well, this is a fascinating topic. Jorgen, thank you so much for your time on this today. You're welcome. It's Jorgen Steenfeld, the Technical Director in the Marine and Foundation Engineering Department at the Cowie Consulting Group in Copenhagen. You know, finding alternative energy sources is always big news, right? Being able to generate electricity from the wind, the sun, and from water, well, those have really marked some big strides forward. But can we do more? Turns out, yes, we can. How about generating energy from falling snow? That would really be something, wouldn't it? Well, scientists say they've actually managed to do this. Researchers at UCLA, in cooperation with Canadian scientists at both the University of Toronto and McMaster University, have actually revealed their mechanism in research this week. It involves producing a relatively simple, looks like, silicone platform that harnesses energy from falling snow. How does it work? How quickly can we make use of this? Well, for those questions and more, we turn to Mayor Alcadi, who's a UCLA chemistry researcher and the co-author of this project and the research. Well, Mayor, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to start here by asking you to explain this whole thing. Like, are you talking about generating electricity from falling snow? Yes, that's exact, that exactly what we made. So we made uh, a device that uh, create electricity from the falling snow. And we call that device triboelectric nano generator. Well, it sounds so technical, right? Yeah. So uh, let's make it simple. So if you ever got yourself a truck by touching the doorknob after rubbing your feet against the carpet, that's exactly the way our devices work. This is static electricity. So what you really have is one material that's willing to give up electrons and another material that likes to extract these electrons. So the snow is that first material that likes to give up electrons, and we just created the device that can extract these electrons so we can convert that into electricity, and voila, we have electricity. <laughs> so that's, the, that's our devices. That's what we made. Okay, you just made it sound so simple. But if it was so simple, why hasn't anybody done this before? <laughs> well, that's an excellent question. In fact, the idea of the snow getting or getting uh, a static charge has been known for decades, but it was never used for creating electricity. It was actually discovered back in the 1960s some scientists and researchers, I think they were some physicists at the Embryo College uh, of London, and they found the mechanism by which snow creates electricity when, another, when it, it, it comes in friction with another snow particle. And they tried to create electricity out of it, but they, they failed. And there were like multiple trials. They were trying more to understand what's happening. There was like more progress that was you know, uh, going on in the 1970s, they found the exact mechanism there, but it did not happen until like in the 1990s that the U.S. Army, they got a research center. Uh, it's the Cold Regions Research Center in New Hampshire. And what they tried to do is they tried to create electricity from ice. They tried to grow some, some ice layer on uh, uh, a cylinder of a stainless steel. 
and then they got a belt around it made out of different materials and as it's rotating they could they could generate an electric field with a very high voltage up to like 1.2 kilovolts well that sounds great but it's not practical because that's not extracting energy from snow it's actually they're using ice for this to, to work so we actually got the first trial of creating electricity from the falling, from the falling snow. We just uh, understand the static electricity. We thought that the snow is willing to govern the electrons. Then why not bring another material with the opposite of charge, you know, so that we can extract these electrons and convert them to electricity. And we, we got our device that way. Okay. So scientists over the years have come up with brilliant methods to extract the energy from the fundamental forces that we have in nature. You've got the water, you've got the wind, you've got the sun. We have devices that can harvest all these energies. But now for the first time, we're creating a device that, you know, harvests electricity from the falling snow. And the reason why this is very exciting is because you can't tell. I mean, every winter we get more than 30% of the earth of the land all covered by snow. Right. So we have a huge source of energy that's just waiting to be collected. And we, we now made the device that can do that. So how big is this device and can it be deployed anywhere? Well, hey, well, that's another good question. Yes. Well, this is made out of uh, of silicone, which is basically a rubbery material. It's used in lubricants. It's used in electrical insulations. It's a very cheap material you can find it. And also, like, actually, it's used in biomedical implants as well. Um, so that silicone, it's available actually in the form of a paint. So it can be painted. Uh, we envision that these, uh, this layer of silicone right, can be painted on buildings. On one hand, to provide protection against humidity and against water, because you need that during the constructions anyways. You need a layer that provides the protection against water. So, so we can have that silicon layer, which is our device, basically uh, as a venting on constructions and buildings. So on one hand, to provide the protection against water, but on the other hand, it can also create electricity at the instance when the snow is uh, falling. So it can be made into any uh, size. Uh, it's stretchable, it's flexible, it's ultra-thin, we can make it at any size. Right now, we made like the prototypes at the lab scale. They're the size of uh, like a, a few inches wide. It's not so big, but, but it's just very easy to scale up because the materials are very abundant and, you know, they can be painted a large uh, area. Right. This, is very, this sounds very exciting and it sounds like it would have immediate potential. Is there a lot of interest in this? Are you already getting people asking you about manufacturing this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we hear, we actually got a lot of emails from different people trying to uh, see potential uh, for commercialization of these devices. What I would uh, respond to these questions is, we're just at the beginning. We made the device, we demonstrated the concept here, we have a proof of concept of our, you know, our device and how it works. We, we showed that it can extract the electricity, but we are still looking to improve the power output of this device, and that's what we have left here. So we're we're working. We're here. We're busy here trying to improve the power output for our devices. So then we will have um, we'll have very high efficiency for our devices at the end of the day. Okay. So then, how much energy does this create? Like, can it power a building? If a building uses this as their membrane, can it power that building, or how much energy? 
at the time, it will not be enough electricity to power buildings. But we are uh, basically, it, just to give you an example for analogy, uh, we, uh, the tribe electric generators, you know, it, it's a very recent area of research. And maybe like if you asked me like 10 years ago about this, you know, we scientists didn't know much about this at all. It was not even existing. So um, at the time when the first tribal electric nano generator was developed, the power output was very, very low. When you compare it to a solar cell, it's about like a thousand times less efficient than a solar cell. So uh, with time, with less than a year, you know, scientists were able to get the power output to exceed that of the solar cell, just to get the idea. So if you have a solar cell or solar panels that's covering the uh, ceilings of your building, they, they got enough electricity to power your building, right? And that's what we're looking for. We're trying to make or to improve our performance of our devices so that they are, at least they are on bar with solar cells, if not exceed their power performance. Ah, okay. So then how far away do you think, Mayor, that we are from actually using this uh, in our everyday lives? Like, when can we use this and it'll be able to help us with energy issues? Uh, I would say, well, this is a research question. So we've got a lot to do in the lab to improve the performance here of our devices. But I would say within uh, a couple of years, we could have something. That's pretty impressive. Listen, thank you for explaining to us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. It's Mara Al-Khadi, who's a UCLA chemistry researcher and co-author of the research that we were talking about there, which is some pretty impressive stuff. I tell you, her political career has been as varied as it has been impressive. Now, Libby Davies started out as a community organizer, ended up being a longtime Vancouver MP, but she has always, always, always fought for the downtown east side of the city and the people who live there. And now she's telling all sorts of those stories and the stories of that journey in a political memoir called Outside In. And Libby Davies joins us now in studio to talk about that. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. What was it like writing the book? Because there's a lot of memories in there. I loved writing the book. It took me about two years on and off. And I actually found the writing of it relatively easy. It just sort of came pouring out. I guess it had been rattling around in my head for quite a few years. Editing is another thing, but I really enjoyed writing. I think what I really loved about it was it paints a picture of history of the city that not many people can tell. For instance, and we were talking about this off the air, uh, the mental picture I had of former city councilor Bruce Erickson, your husband, Harry Rankin, longtime legendary Vancouver councilor, and Jack Webster having breakfast in the mornings across from the police station on Main Street. Yeah, and I used to, they used to meet at like 6.30 in the morning. I sometimes would get up and drag myself down there too. And listening to these three guys, I'll tell you, it was like a reality show <laughs> way before <laughs> its time. And of course, they're all characters. You know, Webster yes. would be sort of growling out whatever and, and, and Harry would be bad-mouthing everybody at City Hall and Bruce would be talking about what he found in beer parlors. And I would sit there and listen. I was pretty young. And uh, yeah, it was it's a very vivid memory of listening to these guys just like talking up a storm every day. It's amazing. It's just some of the stories in the book. Now, you said at the beginning that the greatest challenge in your career has been your own feelings of inadequacy. Where do you think that came from? I think it's partly a gendered thing. I've spoken to many women in politics and the media too, labor. And I, th I think, it. you know, I don't have any formal training. I kind of 
happened to become elected, not by accident, but I, I never made a career choice. And so I've always had this sense of not being good enough, of being an outsider. I've heard it's called the imposter syndrome, yeah. right? And it, and women do, do deal with this. And it's taken me years to kind of unpack it and reflect on it. Because when I was young, I didn't think about sexism. I didn't think about discrimination. I was so busy, madly working on issues. And it's only later in life and even writing the book that I've been, you know, I've begun to think, wow, you know, so I've been thinking about sexism and what it means um, about women's place in politics and, and the experiences we have. But I always, I always did have that sense of doubt. And then I would catch myself and say, come on, hey, what? I know how to do this. Yeah. I know I'm as good as those guys, maybe better, you know? And so I, it's just something that's always been there. And I felt like I needed to, you know, talk about it a little bit because I think it's something that many of us share in, in the very public world that we work in. You talk about your time as a community activist, how you got into that life, how you met your husband, Bruce Erickson, and that life that you built together. But your formative years, you said you had a relatively secure and stable middle-class environment upbringing. How did you end up doing what you were doing? Uh, I had very independent parents uh, who were always very political, particularly my dad. And it was actually my father who first started working in the downtown east side at the First United Church. Before it was called the downtown east side, it was still called Skid Road. And so I think he instilled in me a great sense of... Um, uh, the need for social justice and helping people and serving the community. I think that came from both my parents. Um, and I wanted to write about transformative change, how it takes place. You know, so many people feel cynical about politics and get turned out. And I, I wanted to um, share with people an experience that if we're engaged as activists, as, as local residents, whatever it might be, then change happens when we're when we're not engaged, when we feel cynical. And so much in today's world is about making people right. feel cynical about everything around them, right? And so I wanted to kind of speak out and say, if we're involved, if we're engaged, we can actually bring about transformative change. And I, you know, I worked on a lot of issues that were not considered mainstream. And I wanted to show how you could be in public life and still work on things that weren't, you know, motherhood or, or popular or mainstream. And you can bring about change. And I wanted to try and share how that happens. Yeah, you became so closely identified with a party, with the NDP. And yet you were writing in the book about how it didn't start out that way. You didn't start out being like, I'm going to work for the NDP. It started out because you really liked Emery Barnes. Yep. <laughs> he was a great guy. Um, yeah, I worked in that 1972 provincial election when Emery first ran. Um, and, you know, my politics was never so much about the party. It was always more about the issues, working on the issues and the connection to the community. I think that's what really grounded me. And, you know, in Ottawa, it's really easy to get kind of sucked into all the intrigue and the drama and the, the politics. And it's like a big vortex, you know, and I, it was East Van that always kept me grounded coming back here every week from Ottawa. It was meeting like folks in the downtown East side or on commercial drive or wherever it might be, you know, my office in Mount Pleasant. That's what kept me grounded and real. Uh, but someone like Emery Barnes, you know, he, he, to me, he was a real hero and he was kind of the real deal. So you know, I, I realized that a lot of my mentors were, were men, right? There wasn't that many women and very few progressive women. 
in politics at the time. So it's people like Emery Barnes and Bruce Erickson and Harry Rankin and um, that I realized, you know, that I, I kind of learned politics from. But I, I learned it mostly from literally being on the street as an organizer. What's changed, do you think, in the downtown east side in all the years that you have been working there and advocating for people? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. So much has changed for the better. Some things are unfortunately still a crisis. Um, housing is still a huge issue. We've lost so many of the old hotels and rooming houses um, that, you know, people being evicted and having nowhere to go is still a huge issue, even though much social housing has been built. It's actually why I ran in 97. I was so mad that the federal government had cut out social housing programs that I had relied on along with other city councillors when I was on city council and co-ops in the city that were built and social housing or housing for seniors. It was suddenly gone. Um, and so housing is still an issue, even though there is new housing. When I first started working in the downtown east side, people weren't, they weren't like destitute. There was poverty, but you could still get to the Ovaltine Cafe and have a cup of coffee. Um, now, of course, it's much different. Like people are still are, are destitute because the income assistance has not kept pace with the cost of living. The overdose crisis did not exist when I first was in the neighborhood in the 70s. Um, I've seen two waves of that when I first got elected, when we had so many overdoses. And of course, again, today, we're still seeing the, the overdose crisis. And I'm very glad that, that city council is taking action. I mean, Vancouver's always led the way on that. And it's been a very important lesson to see how it's been a very bottom up thing. Like I had to fight like hell in Ottawa to get some changes that we needed. Uh, to example, you know, set up the safe injection site insight that now nobody would question. Yeah, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's part of the what we need to do. But you know, in 2000, 2003, it was, it was very controversial. Yeah. So Vancouver's always led the way. And I think that's been really quite amazing. Um, so, so some things are the same and some things have changed, but, you know, it's like, it's, it's a matter of, of, um, finding security for people, right? And making sure that people aren't thrown out of their own neighborhood. That's still an issue. Well, Libby Davies is a very familiar face and name to people in BC, longtime MP, longtime city councillor, longtime community activist. She's written a book called Outside In. It is her newly published memoir. I highly recommend it. And she's with us today to talk about it. 18 years that you spent in Ottawa. What was that like? Well, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved being an MP. It was like an incredible privilege and honor to to serve in parliament there were parts of the job that I you know I found really difficult and challenging and I was glad to get back to Vancouver every week when I would come home and kind of get grounded again um, but it's it's a fascinating place um, and I learned a lot you know I was house leader for the NDP for eight years and amazingly I was the second woman in the whole history of parliament to be a house leader. The first woman had only done it for about a month. So it, it was like, really, you know, more than 100 years. And there's, I'm really sort of, in effect, the first woman house leader for any political party. It, so it is a very male-dominated environment. And, and I kind of learned how to navigate that. But I've also been thinking about it a lot in terms of the sexism that that's still very much part of the culture there. And stuff that you saw that oh, in 18 I years. Oh, not just saw it. I experienced it. And, you know, I, and I think about it more and more. And, and, you know, maybe I'll write on it some more. But it's... 
you know, changing the culture of parliament um, is not easy. It's an old institution. There are rules. There are procedures. Um, and you know, saying that you're going to change the culture, but actually, you know, doing it in the way people interact with each other and the way women are treated or any underrepresented group, and I think it's even more so for racialized women and indigenous women. It's a it's an even you know bigger challenge and obstacle that they face. Um, so there's more women in parliament. There's more young women, which is fantastic. And one one thing I've learned is that I think younger women absolutely do not put up with what I experienced, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, right, where I was kind of quiet. And uh, in fact, I remember one interview that my son found with Jack Webster from 1982. And, you know, he was being sexist. And like, I was so polite. And today, I just think, you know, First of all, a young woman just would not put up with it. And so th- so times change, which is fantastic, but it's it's very much a culture that, that needs to change, not only in, in Ottawa and in Parliament, but many other places as well, of course. You mentioned that the culture did change in that 18 years that you were in Ottawa, but it went from being more collegial to more hyper-partisan. Yeah, um, more hyper-partisan and I think less independence for individual MPs. The the advent of uh, social media and, and how quickly the news cycle, so this has a lot to do with the media, yeah. how fast the news cycle is. I mean, you know, it's literally by the hour or if not by the minute. And so all of the political parties, you know, how they respond to that, how they now put out sort of what we call message boxes, right? And that you stick to that. And things are so fast-paced and changing. I mean, I saw a lot of that change. So when I first got elected, I feel like there was more space for an individual MP to do what they wanted to do, to speak out, to, uh, to, you know, to take up an issue. Uh, But but over those 20 years, um, it, ha- it has become more partisan, I think, and I wish it weren't so, and I think we need to change that. I think Canadians would like to see that. Um, and secondly, to, to allow individual members of parliament more space to do a great job and to work with each other across party lines. Is that not allowed? Or oh, yeah, it's allowed, but, it's, but so much is party-focused, right. right? It's a very hierarchical place. It's very focused on, you know, this is the government, this is the opposition, this is the third party, this is what you do. It's top-down. You know, it's, yeah, it's very hierarchical. Huh. Uh, was there something that, I mean, you spent 18 years there, you did a lot, you accomplished a lot, but was there something that was left off the list that you think, oh, one more thing, I wish I could have tackled that? Um, no, I think I tackled some tough issues that came from the community I represented, and my my task was to put them on the national agenda and to get the government to act. And I feel like I was able to do that successfully, working with people in Vancouver and in the community. Um, so when I left in 2015, I didn't run in the, that last election. I felt like it was ready to call it a day. And I felt good about that because, you know, like doing it yourself, making your own decision. Yeah. It, you, you know, Not you having feel, the voters decide it yeah, for you. That's yeah. right. that's, okay. <laughs> um, that felt good, right? And I felt, okay, it's time for me to go. You know, it's time for new people to be here. Um, I've done what I needed to do. And, I'll, you know, I still continue to work on the issues I always did. I probably always will. I'm definitely a sort of a political animal. But, um, but, but as far as being in Ottawa, it was time for me to uh, to come back to Vancouver and be here. You were there during the Orange Crush. 
during yes. that election, right, with Jack Layton. Mm-hmm. What do you think the party needs to do to get back there? Well, I think the party needs to be very bold in its vision. Um, I know that my good friend Sven Robinson, who's running in this federal election again after being away a few years, he always talks about the mushy middle and that we shouldn't be the mushy middle. Um, and I, I do. I think he's right. You know, the NDP, we need to really stand for what we believe in. And I think, you know, the big issue right now is is global warming, climate change and the economy and how it's going to how the economy's got to change. And I I believe that the NDP is the party to do that because we do have a great connection with the labor movement. It is about making sure that people, uh, you know, have a just transition, that there are good jobs. I mean, it's going to be a huge shift in our economy, in the workforce. Um, but, but it's got to be done and we can't shy away from it. We can't wait. So I just signed the, um, pact for a new green deal that's come out in the last couple of weeks. I hope it's a, a central election issue. You know, there's lots you said of debate you hope. on Do you this. think it will be? Are Canadians prepared so. to do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, already, you know, the carbon tax sheer, the, the leader of the Conservative Party is making that an issue. So what these parties do in terms of climate change, what they're really going to do and not talk is going to be very critical. And so I want the NDP to be very bold and forward-looking and, and you know, no BS. Like, tell us what needs to be done. Show us the leadership. And I think a lot of people will say, yeah, right on. That's what needs to be done. So that sounds like somebody who still has a lot of thoughts. There's an election coming up this fall. Will you be working for the NDP for that? Will you be out there? I'll be I'll be helping. Um, I, I don't think I'll be playing a major role, but I'll be helping. I did in the last election when I didn't ran, run. Uh, and I'm sure I'll do, you know, things here and there. Of course, I'll be watching <laughs> um, like everybody else. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a very important election because time is running out. And so what these political parties do in response to uh, climate change and the economy and jobs um, is going to be very critical, especially for, um, you know, young people. What is their future? You know, when I, when I was young, the fear was nuclear weapons. You remember when Vancouver yes. was a nuclear weapons free zone? Well, yeah. it still is. We were so scared about bombs dropping on the city. Now it's global warming. Right. And so I, I really worry about the anxiety that young people have about their future, you know, what, and they feel like this planet is being destroyed. So time is running out. So it's very critical that uh, everybody step up both inside and outside. On that note, Libby, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. The book is called Outside In. It is Libby Davies' political memoir. I do recommend that you check it out. You're going to learn a lot about history and Canadian politics. Well, some pretty big news from the world of fast food promotions. The very well-known Tim Hortons Roll Up the Rim campaign is going to change. Now, it has been a staple for that chain for 30-plus years, which begs the question, has it just gotten too stale? Well, that's actually what the president of the company thinks, and they're now trying to figure out a way to modernize the contest for the digital age, as in they're thinking about using an app. And I'm thinking, well, how do you use an app for a roll up the rim contest? Doesn't that take kind of the fun away from this? Well, why don't we ask the person who kind of came up with this idea back in the first place, back in the 1980s. Ron Boost is with us now, the former marketing director for Tim Hortons, created the Roll Up the Rim campaign, author of the book, Tales from Under the Rim, The Marketing of Tim Hortons. Ron joins us now. Ron, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Simi. It's good to talk to you. What did you think when you heard the news that they they feel like it's not doing as well and they need to update Roll Up the Rim? Well, I... I 
I'll go by the same thing that customers do and take a look at the contest itself as it is today. Now, I may be wrong, and I, I, I've been to that, but it seems to me that the cups this year were produced very cheaply. <clears throat> that is, that the design work on it was rather poor. It was all just one color. There, was no, there were no pictures of the prizes at all, just a cup with an arrow. Now, I may be wrong, but that's, what I, that's the way I remember it. That in itself d- diminishes the effect because who sits down to read a coffee cup? Nobody. But they do look at a picture of a car or of a TV or so a bicycle, wherever it is, and it increases more interest. That is so true. Like, we see that, we think, I want that, I want to win that with this cup. Yep. You've got to also remember with advertising that if, if you can get maybe 30% of the customer's attention, you're doing really well. Nobody sits down to read an ad. Nobody. Yeah. Except me, of course, because I like advertising. Right. <laughs> but, but what I'm getting at is uh, you've got to really appeal to them. If you can get just enough interest to get them in the store, you've done a tremendous job. Now, I also had an email from somebody who suggested that one of the part one of the problems with this campaign now as well is that you never hear who wins. You don't it's just like these prizes go out into the ether and you don't know, did somebody win the car? Did somebody win a you bike? Can, as far as I know, we used to do it anyway, you can contact the company and they'll send you a list of the winners' names. But that's no good. You want to see somebody with that prize that you right, you can know that that prize was actually given out. Well again, I don't know what they're doing now, but when I was running it and you had a car winner at store X in, say, yeah. Lancaster, Ontario, or whatever it was, you made a big hoopla out of it. The car would be delivered to that store. There'd be balloons. There'd be cake, everything. We'd give it all away, and we'd have invite people to come and see the winner of that prize. It was a very open contest. Uh, now, Ron, let's go back in time here. Tell us, how did you come up with this idea? Who? How did you create Roll Up the Rim? Well, you're going to be disappointed, I think, with the simplicity of it, but (laughs) (laughs) really, this is how it happened. Uh, I had a meeting with our sole cup supplier at that time, Lily Cup, to uh, discuss Christmas cup designs, which we were doing. Before I went into the meeting, one of the executives of the company said to me, said, uh, Ron, could you give some thought to some kind of a contest or something we could do to stimulate coffee sales in the summer? Because it's a hot beverage, and in those days, that's all we had. So I said, fine. Now, that was my introduction to what we should do with the contest. That was it. I was the sole person running the advertising. There was nobody else. I, my staff was me. That's it. When I wanted an answer, I put my hand up. <laughs> so it was, it was the only thing going on. When we had the meeting with the Lily Cup, um, I st- at the end of the meeting, I said, uh, can you tell me something about how to manufacture, how you manufacture these cups? And they brought with them an uncut roll. That's a, it, the rolls of, uh, of cups are about six feet high. They're huge on these machines. But they bought me a chunk of it. And on it was a, was a picture of the upcoming cup. And they're stamped out like a, uh, like stamp out a, a dress pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I saw. So I said to them, well, can you print anywhere on this paper? And they sort of looked at me like I had one of the bricks drop off the load. And they said, yeah, we can, but uh, why would you do that? It's a waste of ink. I said, well, that's that's just want to know what to do here. I said, can you print in this space at the bottom of the cup, this white space? And uh, they said, uh, well, that's called a ledger line, which is used today. And it's the information there, the code as to the type of cup, the size of cup, and the colors. So I said, well, what's this other white space at the top? Remember, I knew nothing about making cups at all, absolutely nothing. They said, well, that's the rim of the cup. 
I said, well, if that's the rim of the cup, it doesn't look like a rim to me. And they said, no, you put it on a machine, and it rolls the rim down. Ah. I said, can you, can you print at that point? I said, yeah, but why would you do that? If you roll the rim down, you won't be able to see what's under it. You want to catch up with me? That's it. That's. <laughs> I hate to tell you, it but that seems was, so that simple. Was, so, did you take that back to your bosses and go, "Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, and people are going to roll it up." Did anybody ever say to you, "Nobody's going to roll up the rim"? No, I was quite autonomous. Um, advertising was an expense and a luxury to the company at that time. There was no agency or anything. So, what I did do, which I was asked to do, was confront the store owners with it. So we had a store owner's meeting. I basically told them what I wanted to do. Would you accept it? And if you'd produce the product, the food product, coffee, donuts, muffins, and cookies, on a one and nine basis ratio, here's what it would cost you, which was about half a percent, one percent of the cost of the cups in a thousand cup case. I said, would you like to give it a try? And they said, sure. And away we went. How successful was it at the beginning? I'm sorry? How successful was that at the beginning when you first started doing it? Well, it's a good question because people didn't really trust contests at all in those days. Uh, the calls that I get on it were, um, you don't give away prizes, there's, there's, you, you cheat, you lie, you know, everything. It's just awful stuff you get because the reputation for contests was not good. When they started to say that, what we did was we, there are big pictures in the store, 11 by 14, it's big, bigger than that, I'm sorry. You, you know the posters? Yeah. And I converted those posters and started printing the names on of the various winners. Not their address and phone numbers, but just the name of, you know, Joan Smith or right. Simi from uh, B.C. or whatever. And uh, it got to be that we didn't have enough room. There were so many of them. By that time, people started to really believe that we were giving away real prizes. Uh, as I said, with the cars, when we got into those, the first ones were Jeeps. And uh, we'd have a, a real co- a real celebration. They'd come out, and we'd see people. We invited the, the various dealers eventually to park the cars out in front of the store so they could sell them from there. We did actually sell cars from the front of the store. You're kidding me. No, no. The customers come by and say, I like that. They go back to the dealer. The dealer said, can I have my car back? I've sold it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what it was all about. We but worked very closely together with people like that. This was an iconic promotion for so long. Where do you think it's gone wrong? Have people just gotten tired of these contests, or does it need to be refreshed? Well, as I said, uh, the first thing I do is, is come back to the basics, because I think the current owners have missed that completely. Uh, give it some pizzazz, for goodness sakes. Uh, show some color and life in the cups. The cups were the main vehicle. When we started, the success of this contest really was noticed because when people started to believe it, they began jumping over the counter to get at the cups. They dump out garbage pails out in the counter out in the lot to be able to get the cups. Are you kidding me? Up. No, no, I'm, it's honest. I'm telling you the truth. One guy that won a truck once had a pickup. It was an old beat-up thing, and he'd drink the coffee for him and throw it in the back of the truck. At the end of the season, he thought, I'd better clean the cup out. And he did, and one of the cups had a truck on it, so he won it. It's all kinds of interesting stories. I see. Those are the great stories, though, that kind of make people want to participate, but I feel like we haven't heard many of those stories. Like, the reputation of Tim Hortons has taken a bit of a battering the last couple of years, wouldn't you say? With a large sledgehammer. What do you attribute that to? Um, well, to be quite honest, when when we were we the collective group of us were working at the company, uh, the store owners were king and queen. They really counted these people that 
sold everything they had, bought a store and a franchise, worked 14 hours a day to make it work. You listen to what they said. You listen to them because they were your fingers and toes. But today it's a shareholder, some guy that cuts a check and wants part of the business. But that's not the person that's making the money. The person that's making is the store owners. And they're your fingers and toes. You listen to them because they know what's going on with the customer base. They hear them. And that's how we, we, we worked it. We worked very closely with them on that. I think that had a lot to do with it. So if you were to give them some advice on how to get back to where they were, what would you tell them? I think they're trying to now. Uh, give them full credit for that. I, I don't know any of the people that run the company now, the restaurant Brands International. But uh, they're trying to come back on that. But, you know, it's very difficult to get somebody back to a company. Very, very, very hard. I think you'd understand that. It's much easier to keep a customer than it is to lose one. And also, there's an awful lot of competition now that wasn't when we were there. Um, we, we, we got things. We led the pack when we were doing it. That was the difference. We had to because if we didn't, we'd go broke. We had to come up with ideas and thoughts and work. New store designs, store locations, multiple stores, putting them on the highways. All these things counted so much. And uh, we broke a lot of barriers that way. So that, that's the kind of thing that you need. Uh, do you see some universal rules and kind of the things that you learn from marketing and advertising at Tim Hortons that can apply to any company out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do in the presentations that I do. Um, I can't remember all the, the words of it because I'm not ready for that. But uh, it, it, it's a matter of, if you, what, what did I say? If you, uh, if, you can, if you can't do it, you know, you shouldn't be in the business. If, if, you're, if you don't want to really put yourself into it, then why, why are you there? You either do it or you get out of the way and let somebody else do it. And as I said, we led the pack. And it's the same for any business, not, not just uh, Tim Hortons and Donuts and coffee and sandwiches, but anyone. If you can't be first, be the best. That's really what it is. That was uh, Ron Boost, who's the former marketing director for Tim Hortons. And as you heard him tell the story there, he also created the Roll Up the Rim campaign, which was so popular for so many years. But Tim Hortons announcing uh, a couple of weeks ago that they're going to be making some major changes to that campaign. Here's something you don't see often in farm country. Dozens of animal rights activists being marched out of an Abbotsford hog farm after a brazen early morning protest raid that saw them shooting pictures through windows and lining the walkways of the facilities where pigs are raised for meat. You may have remembered hearing about that story. That was Paul Johnson reporting for Global News. And that is when about 200 animal rights activists descended on that Abbotsford uh, hog farm to protest what they're alleging is abusive treatment of the animals inside. There were about 50 of the activists who actually entered the barn at Excelsior Hog Farms on Sunday morning. And then there were more than about 100 or so supporters gathering outside the property that they were singing and waving signs. So the police showed up, removed the protesters from inside the barn, but no one was actually arrested. But I was watching that story on the news, right, on Monday or Sunday, Monday, and I realized, well, that's a very familiar face I saw that was actually one of the protesters, uh, one of the organizers of the protest, former RCMP officer, former RCMP corporal Dan Moskaluk uh, from the Penticton area. You probably, if you don't recognize the name, you'd recognize the face, you'd recognize his voice if you saw him. For years, he was the voice of the RCMP for the interior of this province. So you saw him 
countless times on the news. So how does somebody go from enforcing the law to crossing the protest line and then being on the receiving end now of dealing with the police? I thought, you know, there's got to be an interesting story there. So we caught up with Dan Moskaluk yesterday and got him to talk to us about this. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I have to tell you, I, I saw you on the TV in the last week or so uh, at those protests out at the pig farm. And I thought, wait a minute, I know that face. You must get that a lot. Yes, uh, I do, and I have uh, for those that uh, that have seen me out and about. In fact, the first time was actually a Vancouver police officer when I was uh, back at one of the functions, the March to Close All Slaughterhouses in Vancouver, on on, on the steps of the uh, art gallery. And I went over to after the march. I went over and I spoke actually at, at that one as well. So I went over to talk to the three guys that are on motorcycles and assisting us with our safety, and uh, came over to thank them. And uh, we were chatting, and all of a sudden the guy pointed his finger at me. He said, "Hey, wait a." Second. Second, and um, he said, "You're Dan Moskaluk, the media guy, and you survived cancer, right?" And yeah, so the conversation ensued. So yeah, there's some some double takes. Yes. Yeah, I have to ask you then: How does one go from being an RCMP spokesperson, kind of well-known face for speaking for law enforcement, to being on the other side of that, to being a, a protester? Well, I, I think it could be a very natural progression. You know, as a pol- veteran police officer with 33 years of service, you know, my whole sole intention of being, uh, being a policeman was to help victims and communities themselves. And it was to assist those who were victimized and at times downright brutalized in some cases, you know, from, from battered women to physically abused, sexually abused children. And it's usually in those all these years is it's the most vulnerable that are that are victimized. So... Um, my role has been one to trying to prevent violence or intervening when there is violence or victimization. And, and essentially, it's my training in years as actually as a police officer that's galvanized this response, uh, you know, into my fabric to recognize what victimization looks like and to know when there's a time that somebody should be intervening and helping. The only thing now is that it's, you know, it's crossed over to, to all species now. How did that happen then? So you retired as an RCMP officer. What has life been like for you? Well, I, oh, it's a long story. How many minutes do we have? <laughs> but no, it, uh, you know, I think the, you know, the public and I, I'm so thankful to the support that I had uh, between 2013 when I took uh, a leave of absence from, uh, from my diagnosis of stage four cancer and, and there was a, a health recovery that, uh, that occurred uh, um, by and large part of, of adopting a whole food plant-based uh, lifestyle. Now, being homebound, uh, you know, you're, you're researching, you're reading, and it's not much else you can do when, when you're not very well. Looking at this lifestyle, there's three doors that people will come through. For us, it was health. The other doors are, are of course, animal ethics and the environmental reasons for, for looking at uh, leaving animals off our plate. So for us, it started with health. And then the more I read and then the more I learned about uh, you know, the treatment of animals in this industry, and uh, then that spills over to the, to the evidence, the science-based evidence, as how this is linked into environmental degradation. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a no-brainer. So that's how it evolved. Right. And what piqued our curiosity was to become more active in the communities that around us to, uh, to uh, you know, help these, these victims, the, these animals. You said you were diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. How are you now? 
Well, stage four kidney cancer, which apparently is a, is a terminal diagnosis with a 5% chance of making to five years. And uh, I was given months to two years. Um, and uh, I was on uh, an immunotherapy uh, trial study drug uh, briefly. Uh, I was supposed to be on that for the rest of my life. However, shortly into the study and the treatment, I had a near fatal attack. So I was oh. dismissed from the study. And I haven't had medical intervention since 2014. Um, the cancer itself, again, would have been growing for 20, 20 years. I went into the diagnosis extremely healthy, um, and uh, my physicians and, and medical team were, were frankly quite amazed as to that I went into the remission, and then within 15 months, the cancer was radiologically undetectable. Um, and so amazing. today, now, five years plus, I'm, I'm still cancer-free. That is and amazing. I'm healthier than I've been. What, yeah. do you, what do you attribute that to? I attribute that uh, mainly to uh, to uh, uh, eliminating animal products out of my diet. Like 100%. And was that a change that you made after your diagnosis? Yeah, so the, my wife, Sean, got us into it. Uh, you know, she had some health issues and weight issues. And uh, 2011, our son was getting into weightlifting, started looking at proteins. She started researching proteins. The more she learned, she says, she, you know, we're doing this in the household. She dropped 133 pounds from 300 pounds in those two years. In those two years, I was about 95%, you know, was eating that way in the house and then still scarfing crap down when I was out and about and working shifts. And uh, But I, uh, at the beginning, 35 pounds overweight, metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetic, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, all those markers disappeared. Uh, but, you know, again, and everything came to a head uh, November 9th, 2013, when I got the diagnosis. And in the hospital that night was the day and the time exact second that I committed fully to a plant, whole food plant-based diet, not just vegan, but very much stricter than, um, you know, some processed or, or, or transitional foods. Yeah. So I can see how you definitely believe in this, but what led you to then start protesting uh, at some of these protests? And I went, how is that, how do other protesters kind of take that as they have a former RCMP officer here on the line with them? Well, initially, too, there's the, some individuals, of course, there's some uh, caution, uh, but I think people have known me, um, or those news, that was those that are news watchers or in the communities yeah. that have worked, they've, they've known, you know, my integrity and my ethics and, and how I've represented uh, the victims and, and, and the communities uh, doing best by them. It was interesting, and, and it was always put to them that, I think I'm uh, I'm an asset uh, for not only for the active inside, but all, as well for law enforcement. So th- we were warmly embraced quite quickly, actually, and, and given, I guess, maybe our age, the demographics of, of, of this social movement is, is spans, uh, you know, the whole gamut. How, so how, what kind of advice have you been able to give the protesters and how do you use your kind of law enforcement background now in this particular area? Well, again, with my police experiences, I can date back to, you know, the the pepper spray incident uh, at uh, UBC and when there was the arrests of individuals and, and so on to some of the other protests that we've had. And uh, I think what I, for on the side of, for the, you know, concerned citizens slash activists or, or what, what you want to call them, that um, people are kind of afraid of the police at times and, and when they step out of the norms of society and joining activism in that. So what I want to achieve essentially is just that, you know, this is what's expected of you, uh, you know, uh, in lawfulness and, and so on and what you can expect with your interactions with police, especially with animal rights activism now. When we look at some of the other social movements, 
uh, be it LGBTQ or, or religion or, or, or environmental, those are kind of issues that, you know, they do affect everybody, but some of them don't. But when we look at the food and the treatment of animals, that kind of everybody, you know, everybody's kind of involved in this. So sometimes you might get uh, an implicit bias mm-hmm. uh, that's displayed by by uh, uh, the police of jurisdiction. By by and large, though, we do see exemplary conduct and and uh, the role uh, that we see. So I guess it's you know what the activists. Um, can expect from how you know by their behavior and, and you know what what's going to jeopardize their 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 lawful standing and so on, and then also though is that to to give them an idea as to what they can expect from their the conduct of the police and what they should expect. Uh, and again, I always preface this: I'm not a lawyer, but I think I do have a pretty good perspective with 33 and a half years service as a police officer, and and that you know, we'll have a pretty good idea as to what certain boundaries are. And, but again, people at times as well, and, and we've communicated this with my former employer, that we do want people to know that there are avenues that they can take, uh, that if there is certain concerns about how they've been treated or, or, or so on and so forth. So, um, and by and large, too, at times, too, there's de-escalation skills. And this is another thing that yeah. I cover with activists as well, is that at times, because... This is such a personal issue at times you and, and it, it happens to all of us is that, OK, at a certain point in time, the, that police officer got to take a deep breath and say, OK, uh, let's try and deescalate this. But at times we see, t- you know, that sometimes it's the other individual that can deescalate. And uh, interestingly enough, we saw that this Sunday where it was one of our activists who was in, you know, a fairly serious situation uh, confronted by one of the farmers that uh, it was the activist that deescalated. Right. So you're providing some pretty valuable advice here that it seems to me that I've never heard of somebody being in the kind of position before that you find yourself in now. Yeah, I've been looking around the globe. And uh, <laughs> because, again, this is one of the largest growing social movements on the planet right now, because we face such an existential threat with what's going on with our climate, with the extinction of species. And one of the largest contributing factors is eating animals and it's one of the things that we can all do as individuals if we really seriously look at this what's the easiest thing i can do and that's to change what's on your plate you know we can't stop heating our houses we can't stop driving our cars you know in one fail swoop but you can really just sit there and say you know what i can be extremely healthy i can be healthier uh, by by adopting a plant-based diet we've looked at the canada food guide now is focusing on plant-based nutrition there's a reason why but and then little baby steps of course but to really seriously consider it. Well, you've certainly done a very convincing job. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Simi. That's Dan Moskalak. He's a retired RCMP corporal, now animal rights protester.